Well, good morning, church. Um, I wanted to begin this morning with kind of a generic, um, generic appeal. Um, it seems that a lot of secular sources, a lot of a lot of people that are outside of the Christian faith, have found value in what we call gratitude or thankfulness. Um, we've just celebrated a holiday that celebrates this. We've just observed a holiday that celebrates this. And um, it's interesting to see that there are people who have no basis of, of theological understanding who, who still find themselves feeling overwhelmingly grateful. And to such the degree that they <laughs> have done studies about what the effects of gratitude are. Um, and there's even a study, uh, so I was going to give a generic example to begin with of just how people think that, that generosity is good for your health, but this, is, this came up on my, uh, on my phone as a push notification from the Bible app. Um, and, it, and I've just chuckled to myself. I've shown that people who experience gratitude report experiencing more joy and pleasure, express more compassion and generosity towards others, and are even less likely to get sick. But it can be hard to sustain a spirit of thankfulness, especially with holiday busyness, distracted celebrations going on around you. So essentially, they are quoting and citing a, a research study done by the University of Berkeley, which is not a Christian organization, that cites all of the medical benefits of expressing a spirit of gratitude. And there's a little bit of irony in that. Um, I think probably the most disappointing thing, if I were to put myself in the position of somebody who didn't believe in God, perhaps the most disappointing thing would be wake up uh, in the morning and to just wake up and breathe the fresh air and to look outside at the beautiful, uh, um, I can't say creation, what can I say? Uh, the beautiful earth that we have around us, all of the nature that exists, and to see a beautiful sunrise and to just have this feeling of gratitude, of thankfulness, that I get to see another day and yet have no one to express that thanks towards, for it to simply be a random occurrence. Um, and I think that this is, this is not an unusual thing. There's oftentimes where people will take, they see a value in the Christian faith and they want to take components of the Christian faith and isolate them and use them for their own benefit and yet reject the things that actually give them life. See, the question that I want to answer today is, is it possible to have a dead gratitude? We've been in a series looking at hypocrisy in the church um, it's been a little bit PG-13. There have been a lot of things that have shown up that have been uncomfortable to talk about. And, and I was reminded of a story in the Hebrew scripture, gratitude. Can our gratitude be dead inside? Can we be hypocritical even as we celebrate how much we're thankful for the blessings that God has given us? So if you would, we're turned together in... Um, in, <laughs> in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6. And if you're using your, the story Bibles that we have here, it's on page 251. Um, and we're going to be in the Hebrew Scriptures. This is not connected to the, the letter of Corinth or any of the things that we've been talking to. This is kind of a standalone sermon that just fits in with the theme and some of the details 
of uh, what we've been covering together. Next week, we'll be starting a series that's focusing on Christmas and on waiting and anticipation and, and, and hope and um, excitement for the future. But today, we're going to talk about dead gratitude because I just love uh, punishing myself. So uh, we're gonna, in the book of 2 Kings, we're in chapter 6, and I'm going to begin in, in verse 4, but let's pray together before we begin. Jesus, we thank you for all of the diversity of your word, that there are letters written by pastors to their churches, and that there is historical records of events that happened in the past, and how you dealt with people, and how people responded to you. God, we thank you for the different ways that these different kinds of stories teach us, we thank you for the way that they challenge us and that they draw us closer to you. And that's our prayer this morning, God, that, that you would use these events, that you'd help us to understand the heart of the story that you were trying to convey as you were working through these people's lives. We pray that you'd meet with us here in this time, you'd give us understanding and clarity, and that you'd give us the wisdom to apply this in a way that would be honoring to you this week. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So again, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 6, and I don't know how else to get us into this other than to just say it's a really, really rough time, and these first couple of verses here are going to set a scene for us in an ancient city that is surrounded by walls. Um... And the, the name of the city is Samaria, but it's just a picture for yourself, an old city or an ancient city in the Near East with, with walls surrounding it. And we're going to begin in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. <clears throat> afterward, uh, this is after the story that happened before, which we're not going to talk about, but afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. So they camped around the city and blocked everything off. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cob of a dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong thing. 31. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, o, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat, and eat him, but she has hidden her son. And when the king heard these words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elijah, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So, uh, things are not going well. 
An army uh, has encamped around the city. They've besieged it, which means they've cut off all supplies. You can't get any water. You can't get any food in or out. So they're not like actively firing or actively tearing down the city. They're just kind of everybody's standing around outside waiting for you to starve to death. And it's gotten so bad that now people are selling parts of the animals that are undesirable, a donkey's head or dove's dung, um, at really, really high rates. It's that uh, principle that we're familiar with, supply and demand. If there is no supply and there is a lot of demand, then what you actually do have, the supply you do have, is going to cost you a lot of money. Even the things that aren't great, even the things that aren't going to give you a ton of sustenance as far as food goes, um, are, are going to be sold. And so the king of, uh, the king of, of Samaria whom we know to be Jehoram, um, he was not a really great guy. And he was a guy who was described as wicked. He, he, didn't do the, he didn't like to do what God told him to do. And the way that God would tell him to do things is through a prophet named Elisha. And, he was, and Elisha was righteous, and he spoke the truth to Jehoram. All the time. And, and this story is, is fascinating. I encourage you to go back and read Second Kings because they go back and forth and back and forth. And so as we zoom into this story, we understand that Samaria is under siege, that everything is bad, the economy has crashed, that people are suffering, and they come to the king. Uh, a woman comes to the king and says, look, I, I, <laughs> I agreed with this woman that we would have a little bit of exchange, that we'd eat my kid yesterday, and today we'd eat her kid so that we could actually survive. Um, it's a gruesome detail. Things were serious. This is about as bad as it could get, and that a parent would eat their own child um, is just heartbreaking to think about the desperation that these people were in. And they come to the king, like the, the only, the source of justice in their world, and say, hey, you got to arbitrate for us. you gotta, you got to help. Me. Like, we made this agreement, and she's not standing up to it. And the king hears what's going on and just rips his clothes. His heart is finally broken. He says, well, you know, what will I do? I don't have any resources. Like, shall I go out to the wine press and, and get wine? Like, we haven't had a good harvest, like, ever. Uh, shall I go to the threshing floor and get wheat for you? Like, I, if God's not going to help us, then how am I going to help you? He's hopeless. The source of justice and the source of leadership for this community is in turmoil is just broken. And he lashes out at the prophet. He says, if, if, if Elisha, if that prophet, the person who's faithful to God, if he's not dead by the end of the day, then God do the same to me. Then God kill me. In the middle of this civil war and this constant conflict and now this siege invasion, there is no hope. So let's continue reading. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now, the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to, sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? 
And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord tomorrow, About this time a seah of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make the windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So the king is so frustrated and so hopeless, he says, You know what? I'm going to kill the only person who's serving Yahweh. I'm going to kill the only person who's serving the Lord, the only one true God. I'm going to kill him because I can't put up with him. He keeps telling me that I need to repent and that all of these bad things that are happening are judgments on my sin. And I'm just fed up and hopeless and I'm just lashing out. And so he sends messengers, and Elisha says, hey, by the way, somebody's about to knock on the door. Like, don't let that guy in, because they're going to try and kill me. And so as he's saying this, they start banging on the door. And they don't come in, because they're already holding the door. <clears throat> and so why is it that you've come to kill me? Well, you know, the king wants you dead, so that's why we're here. We're here to do what the king says. And Elisha says, look, tomorrow, this time tomorrow, Fine flour is going to go for one shekel. Where you are now paying how many shekels for a donkey's head? 80 shekels of silver? Tomorrow, a little bit of bread is just going to cost you a shekel. Whether that's fine flour or whether it's, uh, <laughs> whether it's barley. Either way, you're going to eat. Tomorrow, at this time. Now, can you imagine uh, the hopelessness in the city? And you're an officer in the king's court. And so you see not only firsthand the distress that the people in the city are in, but you also see how the king is dealing with the stress. And so for all of the hopelessness that exists in the city, you as a person with a front row seat to the leadership and how the leadership are planning to deal with this, you say, look, man, I don't believe you. I've seen the spreadsheets. I know the numbers don't add up. If God himself opened the heavens and made rain pour down, like, could this even be possible? It takes time for crops to grow, and we don't have any crops. How would it even be that we could have bread this time tomorrow? And Elisha says, look, man, you're going to see that this is going to happen, but you're not going to eat any of it. You're going to see that what God has shared with me and subsequently I have shared to you, you will see that this is true and you will not benefit from it. This is a, this is a big game. You know, a cynic is a person who knows the cost, the price of everything and the value of nothing. A cynic is a person who knows the price of everything and the value of of nothing. See, he was so focused on the things that he could see, the tangible elements and the practical ways of running a city, the practical ways of administering government, that he didn't even understand that God, who is outside of everything and who has all resources at his disposal, could turn everything on a dime. See, cynicism will eat you from the inside out. 
If your eyes are so focused on the world and on the circumstances that you can control and you've factored God out of consideration of how your life is going to work, then I can guarantee you that that emptiness and that hopelessness is going to continue to rot away at your heart. And that's where this guy is. And, and can you blame him? Has anybody ever been there? Has anyone ever said, oh, I've, I've seen the budget. Like, we're not going to make it through this. I've seen the scoreboard in the first quarter. There's no way we can pull this out. We're so far behind. We're never going to make our ends meet, much less get ahead. <laughs> we couldn't even afford the car that we had, and now we've wrecked both of them. There's nothing to be thankful for. Let's continue reading. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If, if we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we shall die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, <laughs> we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into the tent, into a tent, and ate and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. I'm going to pause there. So these social outcasts, these lepers, these people that actually technically weren't allowed to be in the city, they're kind of hanging out at the gate and they, they start doing some math. I'm not really good at math, but I can follow their logic here. <clears throat> they say, look, all right, um, all right, city's being sieged. Uh, there isn't any food left. We don't have any money. I mean, technically, we're not allowed to you know, go in the city. But if we went into the city, we would be going into the city to starve to death. And if we sit here at the gate of the city, when the army decides that it's time to go into the city and clean up, like, they're going to clean us up first. We're sitting at the gate. So if we go over to the invading army and, you know, we ask for mercy or, you know, tell them that we can give them, I don't know what, we can plead with them, please, for mercy. Uh, there's a slight possibility that they'll say, yeah, sure, you can live. And there's a pretty good possibility they might kill us, but hey, at least it's a quick death. So let's go do that. So these four lepers, they kind of wander out at twilight after dark, you know, they're trying to be sneaky, I guess. Uh, and try not to draw too much attention, and they go up to the camp and, you know, knock on the first tent. Nobody answers, and they knock on the second tent, and nobody answers, and they're wandering around, and camp's empty. City behind them is huddled in fear, and around them is encamped an army of tents. 
Everything has been left behind. See, what had happened was, see, what had happened was, what had happened was, God got involved the way that he said that he was going to. See, God made the armies hear the sound of horses and chariots, and they said, oh my gosh, we're being surrounded. We better run. And I don't know if you've ever been in an army. I haven't experienced this at all, but I suspect that if you're in a giant camp and somebody runs by saying, run, we're being invaded, we're surrounded. Like, that's not really a time that you, like, double check and, you know, pull out your check your uh, checklist and start going through, you know, all right, did I pack everything that I needed? Uh-huh, yeah, mm-hmm. Not really a time for protocol. It's a time for running. So the army ran away. And these lepers wander out, and they realize, hey, everybody's gone. That's, uh, that's a new development. Like, and they left all their stuff. There's food here. We haven't eaten in a long time. And so they eat, and they drink, and they take things. They take items of wealth, gold and silver, and they go and they hide them. And can you imagine these outcasts, these people who'd been on literally on the outskirts of society for most of their life because of this skin disease that they had? They, can you imagine just like, oh my gosh, I've never had anything. And now I have something. And I don't just have something. I have a lot of something. And I don't just have a lot of something. I have a lot of really good something. I have good food. I have good drinks. I have good wealth. This is going to be able to sustain me even if society never accepts me. Like, I'm set up. And these are people from the, from the nation of Israel. They know Yahweh. They know the one true God. And they see God's rich blessing that's been poured out on them. And they take it and they hide it. And my suggestion is that at this point, their gratitude is still dead. Whatever they might be feeling, gratitude or thankfulness or happiness or whatever it is because God has blessed them with wealth, I'm afraid that it is dead inside them at this point. But I'm grateful that it doesn't stay there. See, look at verse 9. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. They, they get it. They're like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Gosh, we're so grateful. But what we're doing, hoarding up for ourselves, indulging ourselves, getting the things that I deserve is not the right thing to do. We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and they called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one there. There was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but horses tied and donkeys tied and tents as they were. And the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in open country, thinking when they've come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, let some of the men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who were left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horses and the king sent after sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went to them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. 
See, transfer back to the lepers. The lepers, when they realized what they had stumbled upon and they realized the need in the city behind them, they said, what we are doing, indulging ourselves, filling ourselves at the, at the cost, not the cost, but and ignoring those who are still in need behind us, it is not good. Let us go now. If we wait until morning to go and share this, We're in big trouble. We have to go now and tell the king. And hey, I don't know, like, I don't know much about these lepers. I, I know that they're practical dudes. You know, they just are trying to make things work in their life. And so they show up to the king and say, hey, king, by the way, like, there is no army out there besieging us. There's nobody holding us in the city, cutting off our supply lines to food and to water. Um, they're gone. And the king, like, you, you get the king too. Like, the king says, oh, I know what happened. They're setting a trap for us. They've kind of walked away from their tents for a minute, but when we go out and start to get into their tents, they're just going to swarm in and kill us. And, and he says, I'm not, I'm not falling for that trap. I'm not falling for it. I'm responsible for this city. I'm going to take care of this city. And one thing I'm not going to do is lead the city outside of the protection of these walls to certain death. And uh, you can imagine the dude in the back. Hey, wait a second. Um, well, we've got like five horses left. And we can hold on to those horses. But eventually those five horses are going to be like, like all the other horses that we have. Like they're all going to die. So if they're going to die anyway, like why don't we just send a couple scouts out and make sure that there aren't any encamping armies outside of the skirts of where their camp was. The king says, yeah, sure, fine. So we go, and hey, uh, not only are there no armies, like the, the, the Assyrians were so concerned about the invading forces, quote-unquote, that are coming after them, that they left all their armor behind. Like they were taking stuff off and throwing so they could run faster. They were trying to get away because that's the kind of fear that God had instilled in them. The gratitude of these four lepers was dead until they realized their gift was to be shared. See, living gratitude for God's blessings to us leads to selfless generosity. Living gratitude, the kind of gratitude that brings life to our bones and to the lives of other people, living gratitude for God's blessing. God, thank you for the richness that you've given to me Living gratitude for God's blessings leads to selfless generosity. That's the point, but there's one more thing I want to show you. Let's look at verse 16. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a seah of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria. The captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him. But the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. See, God kept his word in both the provision of make, resetting the economy, 
God said, I'm going to reset the economy and tomorrow everything's going to be better. And he also kept his word in the gatekeeper's demise. See, this guy, the cynic, said, God can't do that. See, cynicism, bitterness is going to cement you in place. It's going to hold you right where you are right now when God chooses to move. And when God chooses to move, there are people that are going to follow him. And, and hey, they might crush you as they go. You know, living gratitude for God's blessing leads to selfless generosity. They share it. Whereas cynicism, uh, God hasn't done anything for me today. What's he going to do tomorrow? <laughs> Just leads to more death. So as we close, I've got a couple of questions. The first is, you know, you haven't stumbled upon a, a treasure trove this week, have you? <laughs> if you have, like, you can share. Um, but I'm, I'm saying for most of us, we haven't had a windfall of financial blessings right now. So with the lepers, we can see like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. God gave them all of this wealth, and it makes sense for them to turn around and share it with the starving city where they're eating their babies. That just makes sense. Any human would do that. And if, if I haven't had some kind of a super windfall, like, what am I thankful for today? How far do we have to look for God's rich blessings? I don't think we have to look very far. <laughs> because God came down and he said, look, I will give you everything. All things are yours in Christ. We talked about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. All things are yours in Christ, and Christ is yours. Okay? In Jesus the insurmountable thing that you needed to overcome in your life, the sin that was keeping you separated from God, is destroyed. That army that had encamped around your city, that had blocked off all of your supplies for nourishment, that was causing you constant frustration and fear and anger, that thing is dead. <laughs> God in Christ has delivered you from it. He's chased that army away and obliterated it. It's not there anymore. Like, can we be thankful for salvation? Like, I know that when you first come to Christ, like, there's a, I feel so relieved. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't feel guilt for my sin anymore. And then, then there's a process by which God reminds us of the things that he, and he shows us how wicked we truly are. And the reason he shows us how wicked we truly are is he can show you how much greater his grace is than what you have first imagined. Because God's payment for your sin happened while you were still enemies with him. And his knowledge of your sin was perfect. He knew what sins you would commit after you chose to trust him. And he still forgave you at the moment that you chose to trust him. So can we be thankful for our blessings in Jesus? Beyond the whole American idea, like beyond all of the blessings of all of the food that we ate, that none of us were really all that concerned about where our next meal is going to come from, that we have roads to travel from point A to point B, and we have vehicles that can help us to do it in at least 20 minutes in Ocala. I mean, it takes at least 20 minutes, wherever you're going. What are we grateful for? 
And how can we share those blessings? These men looked out and said, hey, that army is gone. Like, this is a day of good news. If Christ has saved you from your sin and he offers to save your neighbor from their sin and you say, I don't know that they really need to know about that, there's something wrong. What you are doing is not good. Living gratitude. See, coming, coming, coming to church on Sunday and just saying, Jesus, I'm so thankful for what you did for me. I praise you. Death was arrested. You've given me life. And you don't turn to your neighbor and say, do you realize that that army around your life has been defeated once and for all and that you can have forgiveness of your sins? You can be reconciled to God? Like, don't you realize that? that How can you share those blessings? See, we're getting ready to start next week a new series. And over the, over the last couple of times, what I've tried to do is when we start a new series, I take that first sermon and I, and I make sure that it's, that, it, that it's from the ground level. Like if, if somebody's never been in church before, that that sermon will be one that they can grasp and the one that they can follow. I'm not going to use church words. I'm not going to be weird. I'm just going to try to explain things in a way that if you brought your friends, if you invited your friends, if you wanted to share something from our church through the podcast with your friends, it would be something that was the first sermon in a series. And hopefully that first sermon invites them into the second sermon and on and on and on. That's the strategy that I'm operating on. And so I start a new series next week called The Waiting Game and about how God takes his time and about how we have to wait for God to do what he's going to do. Like, you could invite your friends and we are printing up cards in order for you to be able to do that. So what are we grateful for? We're truly grateful for. And how can we share those blessings? Because living gratitude for God's blessing leads to selfless, selfless generosity. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening. We hope you've been challenged, encouraged, and helped by God and His Word. If you want more information about Grace Church of Ocala or would like to get in contact with us, please visit our home on the internet, ocalagrace.org. And if we haven't met yet, we hope to talk with you soon.